And don't forget, next week on Be Real, it's the movies where C. Thomas Howell tries on a different race. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be Real! Welcome one and all to Be Real. It's your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast. We're always talking about three movies of a similar genre. And today's episode is, uh, I guess it's a wheelhouse episode. Wouldn't you say, Noah Ballard? Absolutely. It's uh, Nicolas Cage. You're not a good father. Is it surprising that we haven't done a Nicolas Cage category before? We've restrained ourselves in a way that he does not on screen. Yeah, and I guess his most recent movie, which has been getting some attention, um, if on the cult fringes of otherwise mainstream publications, sure, um, has has really begged the question of, like, what is Nicolas Cage now? And I think maybe people are looking at this one because it's a return to form, uh, if you will. Sure. Nick Cage being like a pretty bad dad. That's right. Uh, so that and we've done we've done the Family Man. Right. And there's like a bunch of others where like his daughter gets kidnapped or whatever. <laughs> but I feel like the ones we picked are like the most quintessential Nick Cage being three different types of bad father. That's right. Uh, and so the movie you alluded to is uh, Mom and Dad, which just arrived on VOD uh, about a week ago. And it's playing in a couple theaters, some places. For awards consideration to meet the bare minimum of screens or what? Do you think they really think that Mom and Dad is going to get like awards mm, we'll talk about it we'll discuss uh i don't i didn't say my name i'm chance what's up our other two movies are matchstick men and uh con air yeah yeah well you threw to me so quickly i i didn't know to volley it back to you name wise no that's okay um nick cage is the most important name on this show today speaking of names uh, Andy Crump, who wrote about uh, Mom and Dad for The Hollywood Reporter, is going to join us a little bit later in the show. So, you know, stick around for that. You're, don't, don't go anywhere. And Chance, I have to say that, like, as much as we haven't done Nicolas Cage in our podcast, I feel it's, like, bled in on the edges of things, like Gone in 60 Seconds. Right. And, like, you and I, as friends, well, do you want to cut to the ethos corner? Keep it real. Think slow. We should get through it just fine. Hello, Ryder, Donnie. Donnie, hello, Ryder. Yeah, so that was him as Memphis Reigns and Gone in 60 Seconds, if uh, if you didn't know. Um, yeah, what yeah, does... Yeah, doing Nick- some, real, some real acting there. What does... Nick Cage mean to our friendship. You, you. Well, I think it's funny that like you and I, because like we live on opposite c- coasts of the U.S. Yeah. and like we text a lot and G chat a lot to like stay in touch. And I feel like every three to six months or so, inevitably, like one of us makes an Andy Samberg get in the cage joke. Right. Yeah. Why wasn't I in that movie? <laughs> kind of thing. Are you did a series of like with a zigzag haircut or what is it i believe it's it it's something like with a hairline that zigs and zags like iron filings at the mercy of their mother magnet (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good Cage. It was a pretty good Sandberg doing Cage. Yeah, she's good at impressions. It's somebody else's um, impression. But yeah, so and I, I we think that Nicolas Cage is ridiculous. Oh yeah, and we've seen some pretty silly Nicolas Cage movies and talked about them. What do you think is the best Nicolas Cage performance that like makes for a good movie? Well, that's the thing. Like Nicolas Cage is strangely like at his best when he's like a, in a good, bad movie. You mean bad? Like good? leaving loss. Oh, no, no, good, bad. Okay. Good, bad. Like he got awards attention for like, um, leaving Las Vegas, Moonstruck. But Moonstruck's not like a crazy like Nicolas Cage like conceit movie. Yeah. Well, he's such an explosive it's, presence in most of the movies he's in that he like he enve- he envelops the entire movie. Okay, let's run. So are we starting with Mom and Dad. That's an, an interesting entry point, sure. We can go backwards, I would say. It's written and directed by this guy, Brian Taylor, um, and it stars Nick Cage and Selma Blair, who you might know from Legally Blonde or Cruel Intentions, uh, like kind of a teen film actress turned like indie film actress in the 2000s. Um, right. And it's, Do you think yeah. Nicolas Cage signed on to this movie because he worked previously um, with Brian Taylor in Ghost Riders, Spirit of Vengeance. Did Brian Taylor direct that movie or write it? He did indeed. He, oh, wrote, he okay. directed it. I'm... He wrote the Crank sequel oh. and the original. And he directed Crank okay. and Crank High Voltage. And he deserves better than me calling him this guy, Brian Taylor, as though he was someone off the street. He's made some some notable films, sure. I would say. I'm certain Certainly that's like, why. Like bad ones, though. <laughs> I'm sure that's why Nick Cage wanted to work with them. Um, I was just being silly. So this comes... Let's let's take a quick like look back through Cage Lane here. I mean, he's making seven movies a year. Five to seven movies a year. Uh, he's making movies like it's going out of style. That's right. And the movies that he's making in some ways are. Um, but <laughs> I think he's on this interesting streak recently of like, you know, pay the ghost and like rage and drive angry and trespass. <laughs> These are like, I don't, I don't, they're horrible looking and they look like they're not intended for American audiences almost. Um, but maybe, yeah, but like the last couple years, I feel like he's gotten into like some, whether it was like Elijah Wood and the trust or Willem Dafoe and dog eat dog. He's like kind of, or that movie Arsenal looked kind of like stylishly hyper violent. I feel like I can't say that I've heard of any of the previous (laughs) movies you've referenced. (laughs) Uh, other well, they, than they were, mom and dad, I don't think I can name like I don't recognize any of his 2017 and most of 2016 work, except for Snowden. You don't recognize USS Indianapolis colon Men of Courage. That's true, but that wasn't like a, a movie that was released in theaters. No, a lot of these weren't. That's that's just different than like Nick Cage solo blows up the world. It's like kind of like weird fucked up hyper violent stuff that is more fitting to him than. I'm, I want my own taken six times in a row. Right. This movie, though, like you have to admit from the outset, the conceit of this movie, which I promise we'll get to in a second, um, is stupid. And like most of Nick Cage's movies of the past 
10 years have been linked by the idea of like, this movie's stupid. Uh-huh. It's like chubby. These are chubby rain. <laughs> and I think that any of the successes he's found have been incidental at best. And, you know, a blind squirrel finding a nut every once in a while. Okay. Like, I think that mom and dad is like marginally watchable is a total accident. Let's tell people what Mom and Dad is because nobody's seen this movie. Okay, so Mom and Dad, directed by Brian Taylor, uh, starring Nick Cage and Selma Blair, is about... I mean, I can keep it sort of vague at first, but it's about, like, uh, what if parents... What if the what if the sort of uh, homicidal urge that, like, creeps over people sometimes, I hear, when they have kids or something like that, what if that was, like, literalized in, like, a you know, a phenomenon over some... Well, a scientist explains it as, like, all the parents in whatever area we're in um, are overcome with, like, the exact opposite emotion of, like, wanting to protect their children. You hear the stories about, like, a mom, like, lifting a car to save a baby. Yeah. It's like the The mom dropping the car to kill the baby. (laughs) Yes, pushing it so hard. Um, God, and there's some real babies in peril in this movie, which is, it's too much. It's too much for you? Well, let's get into it. Hey, uh, can I go to a movie with Riley tonight? With Riley? Your grandparents are coming for dinner tonight, remember? Awesome. Grandpa telling his disgusting Vietnam stories. Take my advice, don't ever have kids. Everything just revolves around you, doesn't it? Yeah, whatever. So, yeah, so Nicolas Cage is like your standard, you know, 50-something dad living in the Sad burbs. Dad. Sad dad. living in the burbs, married to Selma Blair, who's a bored housewife who, like, wants to get back doing something, but, like, no one wants to hire her because she's just, like, you know, a, someone who's been a housewife for 20 years. And, right. And then they have these, like, bratty, but not, like, overly bratty kids. And this sort of dorky, the dorky son and, like, the teenage daughter. And the son's, like, maybe 10 or 12. Yeah. And they're going about their lives, and whatever happens M. Night Shyamalan style to cause this thing to happen is never explained. But, you know, then parents start suddenly trying to kill kids. And we focus on Nicolas Cage and Selma Blair, like, trying to kill their own kids. Uh And I think, like, a pretty... You're a pretty basic horror movie, like, three-act structure. Sure. So, act one is, like, what is this world? Like, how normal and boring is it? Act Mm -hmm. two is, like, the thing happening. Right. You know, and it being unleashed. And this one, the third act, is both, I think, the parents trying to kill the two kids, Nick Cage and Selma Blair trying to kill their kids. And also I won't reveal this part because I think it's a fun turn, but like the unexpected foil to them trying to kill their kids. It's a great turn. It's a pretty low budget sort of set piece movie. Yeah. I think it accomplishes a lot with some pretty good editing. I mean, I think that's what's interesting about this movie uh, on a technical level is that it's a pretty simple horror conceit that we've seen this sort of like infanticidal tendencies we've seen it done a lot um but 
this movie kind of weirdly, without doing a lot of explanation about like what the baseline of their lives is really like, we just assume it's the normal suburban malaise. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of like interesting cutscenes to like the parents with their kids, and especially Nicolas Cage with his son, just like talking about fucking in his car when he was a teenager with his nine-year-old son. Well, yeah, the movie has like I think sitcom is a good way to describe it because it has these sort of like how I met your mother style flashbacks almost to be like, why are they talking about like this particular thing? And here's a cutback to like this time Nicolas Cage just fucking went to town on a pool table. He just built with a sledgehammer. Again, it edits him kind of like into a box, which is good. Cause I feel like if Brian Taylor just like put the camera on Nicolas Cage, this movie wouldn't be that entertaining. So when it does explode out into that, that pool table sequences, unbelievable there is no way it says to sing the hokey pokey in the script i guarantee (laughs) that is not in the script oh that's funny Um, and then but the best line of the movie for me if i can just give it to you now please well he's describing his kind of like overgrown child condition he's just like i remember being a kid like it was four minutes ago and you're like okay i got it i got it my feet never touch the ground okay like you're describing what it's like to be like a teenager without a care in the world and then he says my kill ratio is nine out of ten i was a hundred percent sex (laughs) (laughs) i mean if those donut sequences weren't any indication it seems like he was in the past 100 percent sex do you have a personal kill ratio now what what am i to take that to mean i i think at worst it means like for every 10 women he like puts it out there for like nine of them are game so but that's 90 percent sex that's not 100 percent. right that is 90 <laughs> i was 90 percent sex would have been a funnier line Oh my lord! Um, yeah, that's also- an, that's a harrowing sequence that you can tell. Like the camera, did you notice? Like the camera, like kind of shifts away for a second, thinking they're gonna cut, but then the director's like, "No, keep it on him!" And then it sort of comes back. There are like two <laughs> he's funny doing moments. Verse of the hokey pokey. <laughs> yeah, he's he's doing something else now. He's going for the wall. In watching these movies, you start to think about like when Nicolas Cage behaves the way. He often does. Like, that's a destroyer of chemistry. Um, right, because you can't... It's difficult to match that. Sam Rockwell learns that the hard way in uh, yes. one of our later films. You're exactly right. Yeah, You need somebody like Holly Hunter in Raising Arizona who's almost just like, I'm not going to play that game with you, okay? I'm not going to yeah. try to meet you on your level. I'm going to do something totally different. But weirdly, I, I think the team-up aspect of the titular mom and dad is they work well together in, that, in this movie's kind of deranged way. Yeah, they do. I would have liked like maybe a little bit more like about them physically because there's no real like sort of aside or even reference to like their love life. Right. It's just sort of assumed that they're like, like, like his flashbacks to like what was better is not like when he was with her and they were younger. It's when he was with someone totally different, like doing donuts in his car. Yeah. Like I think it's sort of, odd what the script chooses to show about them as opposed to like yes the fact that they do have really good chemistry on screen right but i think it would have been better had it been like you know oh this was us happy before kids maybe even a more resonant movie do you think that nicholas cage has kids yes or no i mean i'm yeah he's got the kid call l doesn't he (laughs) oh wow how do you know that i Um, looked that up today 
Oh, man. I mm. bet his son or daughter is going to come out with a riveting memoir in about 30 years. I can't come soon enough. I hope uh, you represent them. <laughs> I, I, would always, I would already like to sign them up. That's great. <laughs> just Hey, just start taking some notes around the house, would you? And here's my email. Uh, what's your relationship with your dad like? Uh, explore. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but so let's duck out back for a second and talk about this movie as a whole. Um, yeah. It sounds to me like you, I might be a little higher on it in general. You think the premise is just outright bad? Dumb? No, I, I don't think it is. I think it's, you said it's. it felt sort of like trade. I think it feels kind of fresh to see like parents turning on children because usually it's like the evil kid in the house, like the orphan that they bring in and then they like oh, sure. murders them. I don't know that I've seen like a parent get like this violence save for like a sequence in a zombie film or something, but that's a whole different idea. This isn't like zombieism. It's something baser. Yeah. And I think in that way, like, hiring an actor like Nicolas Cage to portray, you know, a father who's just, he's just had enough. He's, yeah. it's, it's genius. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree. So it's, I don't uh, think I'm that low on it. Maybe I was being overly critical. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. Yeah. It, it has that sort of like purgy. It's interesting that you brought up uh, zombies because other than Selma and Nick, most of the parents are behaving in kind of like an eerily quiet, like ramming your head against the glass, kind of like World War Z style pursuer, sure. right? Yeah, definitely. But I, I think I like this movie. I like this it, movie too, despite I think some of its flaws. Yeah. It has flaws in that like the production is far too stylized than it need, like far more stylized than it needs to be. And it's like a little, like the production value is a little like icky and low rent. Okay. Um, but despite that, and especially like the note it ends on, which is so funny because it almost makes this movie like a joke, like right. lead up. And then like the, 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 the name of the movies or like the, this implied statement is just sort of the punchline. Right. Yeah. So in that way, I think it's a, uh, and it's, it's mercifully short. It's like 82 minutes. Mm. Wow. It's perfect. I think it's a really watchable movie, but I don't think it's like a good movie. I think that like, if you're going to make a movie that is inherently this sort of like, you know, acid washed, overcut, <laughs> like fucked up VOD horror movie. I don't think this movie misses the mark on the things it's trying to do. So let's turn toward a rating, shall we? This is uh, how we rate movies on this show. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good Good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. <laughs> or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. 
Bad Bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make Chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or a Ward's Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. Are there anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings? I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says, But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. I'm gonna be... maybe a little contrarian. Give this movie a good good. That's interesting, and I respect that, Reed. And I'll, I'll give you that it's very tempting to give a movie that literally blows Nicolas Cage through a drywall a good good. Yeah. But, oh, what's that? I think my favorite line was the, what is it? Sh- saws anything. So saws it's saw, all. saws all. So it saws all. That's great. I mean, they give him, you have to give him things like that so he doesn't sing the hokey pokey every 10 minutes. Like We're you- going to leave in the hokey pokey take, Nick. <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> But then you give him something specific, like a funny kind of Truman showy suburban consumerist gag, like Saw's All, and it's great. Yeah. Um, I think I'll give it a pretty like hard good or a bad good. Yeah. Like it's just I mean, it's stupid and it's not like <laughs> it's not like a great movie or no. one that you need to feel bad about missing. But like if you see when it inevitably becomes free in like a month from now. Yes. Uh and you want to watch something dumb for 82 minutes that's like kind of funny, I would recommend it. I don't know what I what I like so much about it. It is like, it is the saws all of it all. It's the fact that they got Dr. Oz to talk about pig savaging and like the calling right. of litters. Um, and I think they do a good job of like not answering their central phenomenon question for like a little bit. And then by the time you're like, I don't really care about this premise anymore. Well, then it's time for Nick and Selma to like, act insane and then Uh, there's one great twist and then the movie is over um yeah i liked it same here but i didn't love it i hear no i don't love it i don't it'd be strange to love this movie (laughs) it sounded like your hollywood reporter guy kind of loved it it did sound like andy crump at least in the context of Nicolas cage uh you know losing his marbles on screen that Andy Crump was a fan of this. So why don't we cut now to uh, that conversation? Your right foot in, you take your right foot out, you do the hokey pokey and you 
Well, our guest today is a film critic out of Boston. He's written for Paste, Screen Rant, Birth Movies, Death, and others. And in The Hollywood Reporter earlier this month, he penned an article with a headline that's basically catnip for a podcast like ours. Uh, the most unhinged Nicolas Cage movie moment in years. Andy Crump, welcome to Be Real. Thanks so much for having me. So my thought here is that maybe we could kind of establish a baseline for uh, caginess um, and then maybe complicate the issue from there. So I know I, I said in the, the email when I asked you to do this and you kindly agreed, if maybe we could talk about if you have a personal Mount Rushmore of cage freakouts, maybe we could start there. Does, uh, what pops to mind? Now, whenever I think of cage, like in this moment, really all that I can go back to immediately is, is mom and dad. I think that's, that's how great a Nick Cage performance, how classic a Nick Cage performance this is. But I, I personally really love him in Bad Lieutenant, uh, Port of Call, New Orleans. That's, I think, I think uh, it's not like that was my introduction to Nick Cage, but it, it was maybe the moment where I really he really latched on to like my heart. He, he stole my heart as, as this great, uh, I don't want to call him a freak out actor, but there's a, there's this like kinetic unbridled energy that he brings to his best and some of his worst roles. And I think sure. that Lieutenant <laughs> encompasses that beautifully. It's one of his moves for sure. Freak mm-hmm. out. Oh yeah. Uh, the one for which he's probably most best known. Um, so let's talk about the, the scene in question here, um, which you which you write about, it's he smashes a pool table that he's just con- painstakingly constructed with a sledgehammer and sort of a you know an outburst of telling his wife, played by Selma Blair, about what his youth used to be like and how it just eluded him in a moment. Um, so my my first question for you: um, What are the odds that? singing the hokey pokey is in the script of this movie that's that's another tough one i wish i had a a solid answer i want to say knowing uh knowing brian taylor it's probably in there that's the kind of just loopy unexpected thing that he would put in a script but at the same time i I could definitely see him just letting cage do his thing and and cage just thinking you know what? The hokey pokey feels like it belongs here. So let's do it. Why not? My, yeah, see, I wasn't sure either, um, which is why I brought it up. It it reminded me a lot of the uh, alphabet recitation and vampire's kiss and sort of like the nursery rhyminess of it, Mm -hmm, which made mm -hmm. me think maybe it was improv because it felt like him maybe going to um, a freak out area in which he's comfortable. I'm not sure. You know, it's funny. I mentioned Vampire's Kiss in the piece. Right. And in, I didn't really make the, the guy, I kind of didn't really make the connection between the uh, the nursery rhyme, sing-songy, like childish uh, yeah. quality of the two songs and make the link between them. But based on that, you, you, could, you could well be right. And honestly, I kind of hope it's one of those things that we never really get a, a concrete answer to. I think it, it'd be a great, a great mystery and a great, you know, future movie debate. Perfect. Um, for us to have. No one asked Brian Taylor if it was in the script. <laughs> um, so let's talk about your, but your reaction to the scene in question here goes beyond just like, wow, that was wild. Um, 
So I want to talk a little bit about what you felt while it was happening. Because if I'm remembering right from the end of your piece, you say that maybe you you laughed, but it was a different kind of laughter than you were expecting because of the sort of emotional underpinnings of that scene. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that you laugh about kind kind of just to alleviate your own discomfort. I mean, this is this is it's heartbreakingly real. Like I can see, I mean, just, just for, for context for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, this happens before the point in the movie's story where parents go berserk and start trying to murder their children. So they're, they're, you know, Nick Cage and some of Blair playing his wife are both in their normal states of mind. But when you think about that, you think about the fact that their normal state of mind, their normal states of mind involve, or revolve around a lot of stress and mm-hmm. a lot of anxiety and some self, uh, some maybe some self-loathing. I mean, certainly in Nick in a Cage's case, his character really doesn't like who he is or who he's become. So I think I think if you if you just take the like the movie stars out of this and imagine just two random. Uh, two random people, two two parents, you know, married couple, and just imagine. You could probably picture this, maybe not quite as extreme, but you can picture this kind of explosive fight happening in in real life, where yeah, like a like a like a, a vase gets shattered or somebody <laughs> yeah, smaller hand tools right, you know, things like that, and and I think that's what makes it so disturbing. The idea of of, of you know, of this inexplicable virus or whatever that uh, there's a word for it that <laughs> Dr. Oz drops in a cameo in the movie. And I can't recall it at the moment, but that that stuff's, you know, scary in that like delightful genre way that you go, Ooh, this is, this is just so creepy and weird. And I, and I love it. And I'm having fun with it. You're not having fun during the hokey pokey scene. At right. All. So I'm trying to think, and you, you've kind of set it up perfectly here. I'm sort of work have this working theory about what makes for a good, or what are, what is the characterization that leads to a good Cage freakout? Because I feel like one of the pe- things that you know fans of his like, at least nominally, is that he acts crazy for no reason. But when he plays a part like Matchstick Men, which we also watched for this episode, when he plays someone who has an actual mental illness boy, is it really not that fun to watch him. And so I wonder if it's somewhere in the middle, if there's like, does he work best when there's a subtextual reason for him to act the way he's acting? I I would say, I would say yes, though. I would, I would also just with, you know, apply the caveat of a good Nick Cage freak out is a good Nick Cage freak out kind of no matter, <laughs> sure. no matter the context, no matter the motivation. Um, whether bees or adult malaise. Whether bees or adult malaise. I was about to say there there's also such thing as a bad Nick Cage freak out, which, you know, maybe we could get into my definition for that later. But yeah, Please, I think yeah. I think having something something uh, it's kind of cliche, but something that's real that 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 kind of buoys the freak out makes the freak out more memorable, makes that that heightened explosive manic response that he can just seemingly conjure on the screen um you know more more memorable and more meaningful in a way Mm -hmm. i think matchstick men is is that 
that scene, uh, uh, that, you know, piss, the piss bloodline, I think. Right. Gets kind of, I would say that the memification of Cage has turned moments like that, which I think are, are, I think are great. And that's a, I actually like that movie a lot too, perhaps unsurprisingly, but I think, I think the memification of Cage turns those moments just into, you know, one-liners or punchlines and right. they're deprived of, of all the stuff that makes the moment, uh, that allows the moment to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, this is great. I'm, you're complicating the issue in sort of exactly the way that I, I was hoping you might. I, I wonder Excellent. Wh- what else, <laughs> what, what else do you think we lose or what do we misapprehend about this guy who I think we access through, um, supercuts and caricature and Andy Samberg on SNL and, and frankly, also recently movies that only emphasize the memification in some case, all of those like taken like ripoff movies where he just like solo missions to kill people um, seem to like contribute to this, this idea. But what, what pieces of the puzzle are we missing when we kind of let that take over our, our view of him? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I have this, this respect for him for just grinding out these awful, like direct to TV, yeah, uh, like direct to home video, like action, like pot boilers. It just, it seems like he just has one in the back of his pocket at any given moment, and and I guess I admire kind of the the work ethic. I guess sure. that goes into that, but I mean that, and I would say that 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 kind of occurs maybe like post memification, and I think that kind of plays into the like the way that the supercuts and the way that you know our our culture of trading gifts through Twitter um, has kind of just turned him into like a sad like a sad joke. I mean, obviously I think that does him a great disservice that there's no one who can really do what Nick Cage does, mm-hmm. whether, whether I would say whether from his generation and especially from generations after, I just, I just think that we've gotten to this place where we are developing these really um, narrow and kind of anemic ideas about what people should be doing when they're trying to act on screen. And I think a lot of that kind of, excludes the kind of stuff that Nick Cage is known for. I keep saying Nick Cage as though you don't know who I am. I'm talking about <laughs> when I say Cage. It's best like to refer to him in the third person, I think. I, I think so too. But like just, just for reference, if I say Cage, I ain't talking about Luke Cage. I'm talking about Nick Cage, okay? Um, I mean, is, is there something in his filmography where you're like, go here if you think all he does is scream? I think the adaptation is lets him do kind of like a like a, a reined in version of like the high octane cage thing, yeah. but it also lets him do this other this other cage thing where he's you know neurotic and and in this very human way and that's kind of tuned up too, but it's not on the level of him screaming not the bees in the Wicker Man or him you know losing his mind on on drugs and. Um, there's an, again, I'm, I can't recall the, the movie that I cited in my own piece, but that or, or Vampire's Kiss. Was it Deadfall? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I guess, I guess on the subject of nuance, if I can ramble a little more, please. um, I think nuance and Nick Cage performances is, is great, but I think I also, I also think that there's really something joyful about him just eliding nuance entirely and just 
going off the rails. If you if you want to see Cage, a different version of Cage, a, a version of Cage that you probably aren't familiar with, if you just share that not the bees gif on social media over and over, you should watch Adaptation. Or or I already said it, but Bad Lieutenant I think lets Cage be a little bit uh, a little bit more restrained and a little bit more subtle in some ways too. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying. I mean, that we don't have to make an argument that like, oh, he's more like Daniel Day-Lewis than you think. Some actors are just great because <laughs> they throw 105 miles an hour and that's their best mm-hmm. pitch. Exactly. How would you sort of assess where we're at in his career? This was something we tried to do on the podcast, but we sort of um, maybe got lost in the micro versus the macro. Because I think if you look at the broadest possible version of his career, maybe like the casual moviegoer looks at Nick Cage's career and just sees nothing but free fall for at least a decade. But mm-hmm. I wonder if you're like a more discerning Cage fan and you can kind of trace the the arc of like the Oscar um, through kind of 8mm and Snake Eyes to when he exclusively made movies with man in the title, like Family Man, Weather Man, Magic Man, <laughs> um, you know, through to some of like the weirder sci-fi and then all those Taken ripoffs. But does it seem like now he's on sort of like a weird hyper-violent kick that's maybe more fitting? I don't know. What do you make of his the arcs going on with him? I feel like he's in limbo and he's in search of directors who actually know how to direct his, uh, well, of course that's what directors do, but directors who know how to, to guide or facilitate his, uh, his caginess. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think, I mean, you know, we talked about those, you know, the DTV movies and I, I, I have a feeling that he's got a few more of those stashed away in his closet someplace, but mm-hmm. I, I want to see more directors like, uh, like Taylor, just try, just try to maybe build movies around him. I feel, I feel like mom and dad was kind of made with, with cage in mind. And, and if not, it's a really happy accident, but I feel like he's kind of rudderless at the moment and needs, uh, needs filmmakers who can really make use of, of him and remind audiences that and and critics too that he's not just kind of this uh this walking punchline or this this walking meme i think i honestly i think mom and dad is is maybe 10 minutes away from being a great movie i think it needed more room to breathe um but i think i think that's kind of putting him on i think that movie puts him on the right track and i think if he gets if we find him starring in more movies like that uh, we might get to a point where we can value Cage again, or value Cage anew, because I, I kind of think that people don't don't they don't respect the caging this these days. I don't. I I just think that we've lost our understanding of what makes him such a uh, phenomenal actor. Can we talk just a little bit more about Mom and Dad and how it how you think Brian Taylor? sets up whether with um just the script or the staging or maybe particularly the editing how he kind of positions cage on the way to that freak out because it feels that first scene where like that just weird family breakfast and the way he's like looking at everyone and like ordering everyone around but it's also clear he has like no power here it all seems very important for like setting up the madness to come 
power is a really important word, I think, because that man, when we the, the man we see in the hokey pokey scene is a man who has <laughs> absolutely no power or or he or he feels like he has no power. Right. Really, really, I think I think people in Cage's position in that scene, uh, they have more power than they think, but they feel like they have no power. And what they're really feeling is this loss of their sense of self. And I think the rest of the movie leading up to that point, the, or the movie leading up to that point, really gets at the fact that he's kind of not the person who he wants to be or who he used to be or who he thinks he should be. That sense of just I, of helplessness. I have no control over my life. I have no control over my own home. I have no control in this moment right now. And I think that's the, you know, you read into that further, that's kind of the tragic component, component because of course you do. There might be outside influences that affect how you view yourself or how you feel about your life, and, and they might lead you to this conclusion that everything is out of your hands, and that really sucks. But it's those are feelings, and they're not facts. And I, th- I think that the movie does a good job of setting all of that up, leading into the hokey pokey, and then kind of paying it off through the rest of the movie after the hokey pokey. You're making me think, and this is such a weird side road, but when you say those are feelings, not facts, which is such great kind of like therapist talk, it makes me think all Nick Cage protagonists need therapists. But then it also makes me think about how many bad therapists his characters have had through the years, <laughs> whether an adaptation or Vampire's Kiss or Matchstick Man who turned out not to be a real therapist. What a bizarre through line that is. Yeah, I feel like he needs to be in the movie where he actually sits down with a therapist who helps who helps his life. And that's that would movie. be nice. That would be that would be so pleasant. <laughs> that would be great. Kind of a two person show. You never leave the room. It'd be great. It'd be like Sunset Limited, but with Cage and a therapist. <laughs> um yeah, wow. All right, well, everybody, yeah, do what you need to to keep your metaphorical sledgehammer further from your metaphorical pool table, everyone. Um, Indeed. <laughs> Andy Crump, uh, such a pleasure to talk to you, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Would you like to tell me what's been bothering you? No, I don't like being outdoors. Tell me you've left the house in three days. Mm. One, two, three. Have you eaten anything in three days? Mm-hmm. Besides canned tuna? Mm-mm. Anything else? Dirt. Obviously, I have a lot of ticks. These distractions affected your work of late? What would you do if you had to change careers? What, if I wasn't an antiques broker? If you weren't a criminal. All right, buddy, where are we going now? Matchstick Man. Matchstick Man, 2003, Ridley Scott, yes? You just, you just go nuts for Ridley Scott. This is not true. You find him so fascinating. You, like, write articles about him. <laughs> you, like, okay. constantly reference his his oeuvre, like, in our conversations about film. It always goes to Ridley Scott for you. No, okay, that's right. I thought you were saying, like, I'm, like, a super fan, which it's hard to be a super fan of a filmography with this He's definitely, like, the antagonist of your life. <laughs> you know, he's maybe not a villain, but he definitely, like, offers you the most, like trouble when you try to understand his films yes because sometimes you look at him and you're like he'll make a sort of spielbergian epic that's actually maybe a little more like a david leon type movie um but then of course he made alien and blade runner which are like weird and contained um and i don't think he's ever been sort of as like 
neat in his limitations as Alien ever again. But then right. he's got like weird movies like The Counselor or This or A Good Year or All the Money in the World. How does that really fit into his filmography? I think he's sort of like fascinating, even though if you were like, time to watch every Ridley Scott movie, uh, there might be more misses than you think. What's that Leonardo DiCaprio one? Body of Lies. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's another weird one. That is another weird one. So anyway, this movie um, revolves around an OCD con man played right. by Nicolas Cage. And a he's matchstick got this, man. A matchstick man. And he has this partner played by Sam Rockwell, Frank. Um, and they're just like conning people, low stakes, just paying the bills kind of stuff. And then they try something a little bit bigger. And meanwhile, Nicolas Cage, who like has these crazy bouts of like manic OCD, uh, where he just like cleans his whole house and like mm-hmm. won't leave and like can't open doors or windows, crazy shit. Um, he is led to believe that this woman he broke up with like 14 years ago had a child and he was the father and the daughter wants to like hang out. Remember me? All of a sudden, I have a daughter. Somebody get here. Hallelujah, you got a chick in here? It's a riot, huh? Little training bras hanging from the shower rods. <laughs> That's no way for a young lady to behave and uh, shame on you. Just try to be as honest and open with them as possible. Right. You're a con man? A con artist. Wow. Flim flam man, mastic man, take your pick. And that guy Frank? He's my partner. Teach me something. So he develops this relationship with the daughter and he starts teaching her like the tricks of the trade. Right. And which leads to this climactic moment where like she is involved in the climactic heist con they try to do and all hell breaks loose. And then it turns to one of the most contrived and stupid endings of this kind of movie. It's almost like a oceans 12 level, like dumb turn thing. And that's just how I feel about it. Not to be too candid. You've been quite upfront. I I've never seen this movie before. You never I seen was, it before? I saw no. this in the theater. I was pretty both taken aback and frustrated by the ending you're describing. It's interesting that, you know, Rockwell is trying to kind of out cage the cage here a little well, bit. Well that's what I was texting you earlier. I was like, who wins the award for most acting in this movie? Yeah. Nick Cage or Sam Rockwell? And Rockwell gives it a like a try the first three scenes or so, and then just gives up. Right. Well, because the, the other curious thing is, if you were going to make this movie today, uh, like almost fifteen years later, it would be like an indie movie with Sam Rockwell in the cage role. Right. And then like I don't know, like Caleb Landry Jones or some like <laughs> weird like upcoming character actor in the Sam Rockwell role. That's funny. But the, I mean, this movie is very much like the experience of watching a Nicolas Cage movie, I think, lately or since like Circa Matchstick Men itself, where it's mm-hmm. like you've been conned into believing like this is a good movie because like Nicolas Cage is attached to it. And, like he does prestige movies and like parenthetically Ridley Scott's the director. Right. And it's like a con artist movie, like fun. But by the end of it, you're like, God 
damn it, Nicolas Cage. Like, I'm watching next, aren't I? Yeah. You know? <laughs> or what's the one? It's E. E. <laughs> Isn't that next? Oh, is that next? Or is that... Or maybe um, it's knowing. That's knowing. Okay. That's the one where he plays a like a an aged mathematician. Sure. It's not three three. <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah. So let's talk about the since it's our category, the the father daughter relationship between him and Allison Loman. Um Yeah, so he raises this so she's like fourteen years old and she like they hang out once and then she has a fight with her mom and she ends up at Nicolas Cage's house and then like crashes there and the movie posits that she sort of cures him of being OCD by being like a messy, like emotionally unstable teenager with a very high metabolism. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then can we spoil this movie? Let's not spoil it yet. Yet or like ever. Um, well, I want to talk more about just their relationship before we talk. Okay. But he becomes her like Ursat's father, both in like, you know, the literal sense, but also in like teaching her a trade and the trade he endeavors to teach her is like being a con artist. Right. And she's pretty good at it. Um, Yeah. But like, according to the category though, like that's still like a shitty thing for your dad to do. Sure. Yeah. No shade at our category, but like weirdly Nicolas Cage doesn't even attempt much parenting in any of these movies. No. Um, This one has the most, but he's still sort of like, He's so broken by his, um, his like mental illness and like the life he chooses to lead. And you get the, I mean, God, you get the feeling that just the, the lighting of this movie and like what he sees through his eyes is so like sickly and washed out. Um, yeah. That by the time this like young person who's just like, I want to eat ice cream. I love you, dad. Like I hate mom and I love you, dad arrives in his life. He's just like ready to love anyone or anything. Right. Well, it doesn't sound like he's had an intimate relationship in years. That's right. Uh, Bruce Altman, Dr. Klein is just like, you've been closing doors for a long time, Roy. Nice to see you open one. Yeah. Um, and this leads him inevitably to like becoming a little bit saner and like having a healthy, normal quote unquote life. Yeah, normal-ish. But I he think can... my big problem with this movie, just like, like queasy factor here, is that like, is he dad to her, or is he daddy? <laughs> well, okay. So now let's get into spoilers because, well, because this is a weird dynamic of this movie is that Allison Lohman is a twenty-three-year-old playing a fourteen-year-old. Right, and the movie's interesting because it like you kind of know that she's too old to be playing 14, but you just assume she is cause it's a movie. Right. And yeah. then like forming this very like intimate relationship that isn't necessarily fatherly. He's like attempting to show something about himself, but I think that's just an intimate relationship. I don't think they like have a father daughter relationship. And then I think it's very like on purpose that at the end of the movie, she's dressed very like scantily. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, like, you're supposed to feel that sort of way about her that, like, this is, you know, a weirder situation than you believed. And she is actually a sexual sort of being in his life. And she represented the him being interested in women again, not him being mm. a father. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I feel like the what you're describing is actually maybe speaking can can double as praise for the con that this movie pulls on us and Nick Cage when I think the literal con is like pretty dumb. The literal con is pretty dumb, but the allegory for the con is like pretty potent. That's yeah. But I'm unwilling to forgive how stupid the con is. Yeah, I don't know. I think that it's it's so unfun for a long time when Nick Cage is like ripping off Rain Man and like closing doors a bunch of times and like freaking out and like having like borderline seizures. Yeah. And then it's kind of fun when Sam Rockwell shows up and like they start running cons together, but like they also don't even show you like the fun parts of the con. Like there's a scene where they're about to, the whole thing is there that he and Rockwell are trying to take Bruce McGill, who we love, um, <laughs> in a in a um, a currency exchange con, and so they like get him on the hook at this uh, the strip club at the strip club, and Nick Cage leaves, and then they don't show you where you know Bruce McGill actually bites the fishing hook. Right. It's just like how, how are you not, not going to show me that? Not to spoil it. But, like, not to spoil it, though, but that conversation, like, probably never occurred. Oh, shit, you're right. So that's Damn why it. they don't show it to you. You're the right. movie's very careful about showing you what scenes have actually occurred. Now you're right, and I'm totally wrong. I guess my broader point is just that, like, this is not a fun enough con artist movie to get away with the ending. Yeah. Because of its, like, stupid con at the end, <laughs> it's unable to show you what you believe to be happening. Mm-hmm. Someone like Steven Soderbergh would have taken a property like this and like had that duality to like of what's real and what's Terry Benedict like on the phone with Brad Pitt at the end. Right, right. But this movie doesn't like know how to do that visually. And so what you have is like a like moment yeah. that's like, you know, me taking off my glasses here, just like shaking my head and wiping my brow. So, yes, last thing before the con, as a Ridley Scott movie, this is one of those weird movies a la The Counselor does this a lot, um, or even the original Alien kind of does this, where it's just like, in this movie, I'm not interested in, like, battlefields or Mars. I'm interested in, like, weird drapery light on a on a wall, and which is not my favorite Ridley Scott thing for him to be interested in. Um, and there's right. just, yeah, there's uh, not much... He needs to go outside. Yeah. Exterior not, is his thing, not interior. Yes. Like watching Christopher Plummer as J. Paul Getty in like his mansion while like the weird fireplace like flickers on the wall and all the money in the world is like, this is a horrible use of Ridley Scott. Um, so yeah, that, like you said, visually, it's, there's just not enough like snap to give me that ocean it doesn't 12 have or good even snap. focus level fun. Okay, now let's talk about the twist. Okay, and if you haven't seen this movie and you want to see this movie, skip ahead. Right. It's not really his daughter. They're not really conning Bruce McGill. They're actually conning him. And the daughter's just like an actress and like Sam Rockwell and the therapist too. Everybody's been fucking with them. Right. And he like, that's enough to jolt him out of his OCD or something and then straighten out and marry the grocery check girl that he thought was sort of cute in an intimidating way and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, have a real life. But... That's stupid. 
That's stupid to tell us that like all the emotional investment we just paid into these characters' relationships was actually false. It makes you feel cheated as a theater goer, as a movie watcher, and it's hard to sort of it's hard to reconcile. Well, and I'm trying to think of ways that it could have worked. It would have worked much better if, as we've already said, the movie was more fun. It would have worked much better if this was more of a movie about what it is about to be a matchstick man. If, for instance, Nicolas Cage... Like the title would lead you to believe. Yeah. (laughs) If, if, for instance, Nicolas Cage ever tricked Angela or was imparting the idea that, like, in what we do, nothing is real. Like, kind of like more of an American hustle tilt to this movie. Um but what I thought would have been a braver choice too is to like have more at the end where maybe he like has a relationship with Angela. I think that Khan also necessitates the movie being too scared to let Sam Rockwell do other stuff. Right. Like it's weird that like Sam Sam Rockwell's not in this movie enough. Right. And the reason he's not is because like he's doing things to fuck over Nick Cage. Right. And like But if Nick you knew... Cage doesn't seem to deserve it either. Yeah. I don't think that this movie is horrible or bad. I think this movie is overall like all right. It's fine. But by our rating system, I think it's a bad bad. Yeah. It's bad you, bad. I think in? it's not like a hard bad bad, but I think it's a bad bad. Yeah. It's like one of I those just, movies where the the scale doesn't tip on either side to where you're like, "Oh, that's great quality, but I didn't enjoy it." Or like, "This is so much fun, I don't care." It's kind of neither. Sure. Yeah. Should we talk about Con Air? Yeah. So there's this airplane that's been taken over by the cons. That's right. Um, I forgot how long the like, front porch of this movie is, like, narratively. It t- <laughs> takes a minute. Like, the prologue to this movie is absurd and, like, totally unnecessary for you to appreciate this movie. It starts out with a narration of, like, it's kind of like Robert Mitchum at the beginning of Tombstone. Right. He's just like, the Army Ranger has been on the front line of every American conflict since 1865. But you can, like, see Jerry Bruckheimer, like, in an exact meeting being like, it's Shawshank Redemption, but, like, with a nutsack, (laughs) you know? You know, we show a little bit of the beginning about the crime that he was, like, totally justified in doing, and then he's in prison, and then he's on Con Air. You know, <laughs> a fugitive-style transport vehicle that's flying from the desert to somewhere in Nevada. Yeah. And Nicolas Cage is, like, it's his last day in prison, and the last time he was out, he was, like, dancing with his pregnant wife and he accidentally killed this guy that was fucking with them. Sure. But he's like, he's Nicholas Cage. He's a good guy. And like, he's got morals and he was a former Marine. The movie starts when he's like a Marine. One of the funniest things is the degree to which the script makes other actors yell about his morals. Like John Cusack is constantly like litigating his morality, like while trying to stop someone from blowing up the plane. (laughs) Right. Don't do it. It says here he was an army ranger who just went dancing with his wife and it was justified. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And then um, he's on this transport thing. He's going to. Oh, so the wife is pregnant. Right. And he doesn't see the baby being born. And for some reason, they like never brought the kid to see Nicolas Cage in prison. He gets to sentenced to like seven years or something. Right. And he's getting out on the girl's birthday. 
and he's like gotten her a bunny that he's gonna give her. Put the bunny in the bag. <laughs> Put um, the bunny in the bag. So he gets on this plane and he bears witness to this hostile takeover. Mm-hmm. My favorite kind of situation for a movie to be in. Yeah. Um, of this plane by John Malkovich's character Cyrus the Virus. And right. his his gang of merry men. And Nicolas Cage has to, like, weigh his morality with his, like, desire to see his family with situations he's presented in this survival scenario. After serving the last of his sentence, Cameron Poe is taking the first plane home to his wife and daughter. Today's flight is a special one. We're populating Louisiana's Felton Penitentiary. These guys are the worst of the worst. I see a lot of celebrities among us. I see 11 primetime live tweet, Regis and Kathy Lee's and a genuine 2020 interviewee. What you looking at, punk? Nothing, I was just lying on your cage. But one wrong flight. Stewardess, what's the in-flight movie today? <laughs> can ruin your whole day. Yeah, it's a ridiculous movie. It's pretty well known. It's, uh, you know, definitely Simon West in his first directing job proves himself to be kind of like a Michael Bay acolyte. Um, but it doesn't quite... Let's uh, Yeah, let's we'll just get into the movie here. Um, the first thing you need to know about Con Air is that it's not good. <laughs> and it, like, it makes no apologies for, like, being... None. At no point in the process did these people the, on the production crew think that this was, like, a good script. There are, like, laughable lines, like, oh, cheesy... There are many. Crazy lines in this movie that I'm sure Chance has written down. Um, and so they just filled it up with talent and filled it with as many explosions and like bloody horrible deaths as possible. Right. And, and way too many characters. Way too many characters. Well, you need all uh, you need characters for all these actors that we have in this movie. That's true. This is the kind of movie you cast first and you write second. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. There's like no reason that Cole Meany like needs to exist in this movie as like the well wasn't the weren't the shitty FBI guys in uh the Die what you call it? Die Hard. Weren't they kind of funny? Let's put that in the film. Sure. Um, or does it seem like Cyrus the Virus, who's like a genius con- convict, is not enough of a genius? So like, let's get Steve Buscemi in here and let him talk some unlikely philosophizing as well. I kind of knew you wouldn't like this movie, Chance, for one reason and one reason alone. Is that oh every time something dramatic happens, there is a blaring electric guitar <laughs> flourish. <laughs> You can't have whole fight sequences with (laughs) happening in the background. (laughs) I knew how how much that upset you with um, Perfect Storm. That's right. I do not like that style of uh, story composition. Yeah. But yeah, like John Malkovich will shoot like just some guy like, (laughs) you know, it's like it's like Seinfeld in a minor key. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Is The Rock like markedly better than this film. I thought that there, the scene of the like exploding, like ball in the mouth thing was con air and realized that it was the rock halfway through Uh con air. (laughs) I think these movies are pretty indistinguishable in their sensibilities. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I think that Simon West just makes, he doesn't have the, 
I don't think he has the directorial skill to make even less of an apology. Like, Michael Bay would never apologize, but also he's too busy to apologize with this, like, with how sweeping it is. And I think that Simon West gets into, like, a little bit, like, lazier, like, cutting. Yeah. Um, Like, there's just a little bit, instead of, like, tackling the moment and tackling the plane, it's just kind of... You know, I've got to show every character in the next eight seconds. It's like, no, you don't. Like, let me just enjoy the <laughs> the scope of this. Right. And I also think it was just like, because this movie's silly, right? Sure. And I think the the silliness is sort of the problem with it. Yeah. Because like, it's just so like, there is no reason, first and foremost, that the plane needs to look like the spirit of St. Louis. <laughs> you know, jailbird. it's like this. Yeah. It's just like this crazy airplane that like they would certainly not really use. Right. To. And it's like state of the art inside. Sure. It's like what sort of like weird retro movie production office did this prison plane come from? Yeah. Or I think that if it just like commit fully to its silliness, I think the problem is that it it still feels the need to vindicate Cameron Poe when really like there's no vindicating any character. I'm sorry. In a movie, in a hostile takeover convicts on a plane movie. Right. So like when he embraces his wife at the end, he's just like, baby, it's finally so good to see you, Casey Poe. It's just like, who who is this for at this point? Was this like the girlfriends who came to the theater in 1997 who were finally like, oh, yes, finally, my moment after two hours of like Dave Chappelle getting run over and Danny (laughs) Trejo threatening to rape people. This movie's stupid and offensive and loud and packed full of actors. That it is so stupid stops it from being more offensive than it is. Right. But basically, they're yeah, so they're on the plane, and then um, John Cusack's like the head of the plane, but Cole Meany's partner's on the plane. He's like FBI, but John Cusack's like prison systems or something. U.S. Marshal Vince Larkin. Oh, yeah. Vince Larkin. <laughs> God, they don't make them like this anymore, do they? And they don't make those suits he wears anymore either. My God. Um, did you notice how often direct address is used just to like vindicate these like awful like nicknames that like clearly some old white man came up with? Like, what do you think, Diamond Dog? <laughs> yeah, Ving Rhames I don't is- know, Virus. <laughs> What what to make of this? Are there there are like positive things to take away from this movie? There's like a lot of gratuitous bloodshed. Um, sure. If you find that sort of thing entertaining. Right, right. I think it has for basically having no plot other than the premise. I do find the execution of that like first switcheroo where they land in the sandstorm and have to get the new prisoners on and put the old prisoners off. Like, I think that's a pretty good kind of suspenseful. Yeah. Beat. Matchstick men needed a little bit more con air. Yes. Um, but then, I mean, after that, it's just like, it's just like vehicle explosion porn, right? It's kind of like, and now we're in a fire truck and now and then, we're in a different plane. And this weird moment in Nicholas Cage's career that is basically just the rock and this movie where he was like an action hero. Like he he could kick ass. He is yoked in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's great. He's big. He's a bit. Yeah, he's put on some some uh, pounds in the muscles. No doubt. Oh well, that's the that's the thing. The movie tears uh, or pulls Nicolas Cage between his desire to be like a good father and husband and his desire to be like ultimately, you know, well, badass, but he's really there to help his friend and the female uh, guard. Right. Can I say another problem with this movie? And it fits into our genre. Like, I mean, not only does Nick Cage not parent because he's not around the kid. Well, that's what I'm saying. He doesn't pick being like, if he really loved his like wife and daughter and wanted nothing more than to get back to them, like, fuck that plane. He could have gotten <laughs> off easily. But Cameron Poe is like, he he doesn't really, he's not allowed to do very much cagey and stuff. He's pretty like. He's the straight man. He yeah. should have been the virus. Bring it on. I would love to see John Malkovich as Cameron Poe. No, I mean, you would have cast like someone more logical. No, I mean, like Malkovich is like making a meal of this. Um, and he's like, Malkovich isn't bad. He's like overqualified to be here. I mean, his, yeah. his <laughs> lines are ridiculously overwritten. Like the funny thing about this movie is that like, instead of the like, <laughs> let off some steam, Bennett, like all of its like action movie, like fuck yous, um, are so overwritten for Malkovich. At one point he says to the pilot, um, if you screw this up, the next wings you'll see will belong to the flies buzzing relentlessly around your rotting corpse. Right, that's a good one. Which is a long way to go for a plane has wings joke. But you said, you texted me earlier that you thought Cusack was bad. I think he is bad because, like, especially, he's especially bad in the setup where he has to be like Chris Collinsworth introducing the prisoners like as they get onto the plane he's like and that's fucking Billy Bedlam and man I love that <laughs> fucked up motherfucker holy cow <laughs> that is Cyrus the virus <laughs> he's been holy studying holy cow he's been studying so much tape he can't wait to tell you all about oh, it oh man yeah, he just really like slips in there like Chris Collingsworth joining Al Michaels. Yep. I cannot wait for the Super Bowl. DAA, I tell you, that guy, uh, he's a white supremacist. Yeah, you can tell from his distinctive uh, swastika tattoo in between his eyebrows. Yep. All right, let's get back on task. Okay. Um, I think it's time to rate this puppy, yes? Yeah, this movie is interesting to Ray because it sticks out in my mind as like when someone's like, well, what's a good example of like a bad good movie? It's like Con Air. Yep. But like after watching Con Air, like I don't know why so many people like know of and like this movie. I almost want to say it's a soft, bad, bad. And I think Nicolas Cage is a terrible father yet again. Yeah, but he's not terrible in an interesting way. It's just terrible like in an absent, why are you doing that accent kind of way. Right. But in this one, it really is his daughter. Right. I think. But maybe not. 
Who he knows? just likes having like seven to 14 years off from the whole father thing and then like joining their lives as they like enter adulthood. It is weird that in the two movies we're like, what? how can we plausibly position Nick Cage as a father? It's like, well, he definitely doesn't know the kid. And if he does, yeah. he has to be trying to kill the kid. He's only the father in the biological sense. Uh, yeah, that's the lesson of this category is that directors don't think Nick Cage can play a good father either. Have you seen him with kids? He's terrible. Um, I'm with you for exactly what you said. It seems like a quintessential bad good, but like it is such a, you know, not to get on my, uh, my sensitive moviegoer horse here, but like it's such a punishing two hours <laughs> on the senses. Like if, for instance, and I'm just saying hypothetically, if it was like two o'clock this afternoon and you still had to watch mom and dad after it, you're not going to feel great at the end of Con Air about like watching more movies. movies. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Um, yeah. It's like an icky movie. It's like an icky Saturday afternoon movie. That's like, ugh, I should go be productive. Yeah, and it's got that kind of uh, Attack of the Clones Geonosis color palette for too much of it out in the desert oh, yeah. there. Um, and just one more time, Nick Cage is like, Nick Cage is not off the wall enough to make it. No. You're going to be The bored. only thing he puts his enthusiasm into is that accent, which is insufferable. Let me ask you a question as we depart this category in this episode. And thank you again, Andy Crump, for coming on. Um, could Face Off have fit this category? Oh. Um, like halfway, right? Halfway? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I just don't think this podcast could have handled an all-cage one, including Face Off. Sure. Face Off, I'm saving for a rainy day. The rainiest day, yeah. I think it's like maybe like a two-actor play the same role movie kind of territory. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about it later. Okay, great. I was just debating whether or not like, well, does it count because caster Troy is dressed up as John Travolta for the second part, but Nick Cage is a dad the whole time. I was wondering. It's interesting. I mean, he doesn't play a very compelling father. We've no, learned. That's true. Um, but otherwise, man, I think we're, I think we're out here. Yeah. It's been a pleasure to discuss these weird Nick Cage outings with you. Oh, my Lord. Um, yeah. So, folks, find all our uh, episodes at BeRealPodcast.com. By the way, there is now a cool scrolling alphabetical list at the bottom of our homepage where you can find every film we've ever reviewed, and it links to the episode page for that movie. So dig that. Uh, you know, Apple Podcasts. And Podcast. Chance, we've been, yeah, we've been pretty good about putting on Twitter when like stuff is streaming, so... We have. Give us a listen or watch. Or how about you watch first and then you listen to like what we thought about it. And maybe it'll confirm or, uh, you know, sort of conflict with your opinion of the film. And then, you know, that's how we learn stuff. I think you will like us more if you watch the movies first. It can only help. Um, right. Or if you're on the fence about a movie that's streaming, maybe listen to us and decide whether or not it's worth your time. There you go. There you go. Uh, as always, the most helpful thing you can do is subscribe to the show and share with a oh, pal. And rate us. And rate us. Those are nice things to do. Um, but Noah Ballard. Sir. I'll talk to you next time. How could somebody misfile something? What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Hater. H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Hater. Q, R, S, K.
T-U-V-W-X-Y-Z! <laughs>